Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 112. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and this week we're going to be talking a little bit about fixed income, specifically the high-yield space. What the heck are these zombie companies that we hear about? And on the program, we have a special guest today, uh, Marcel Benjamin. Uh, Marcel is a fixed income strategist at the Spider ETF Fixed Income Group, part of State Street Global Advisors. I will put a link in the show notes so you can check out all the different things that he's involved with. Prior to joining State Street, uh, he was an investment strategist at Swiss Re and also spent time at Guggenheim Partners and began his uh, fixed income career, part of the the BlackRock group. Marcel also holds a uh, BA and BS from University of Penn. I guess you call it Penn, right? And then an MBA from Columbia Business School. So I guess you're qualified to be on the, the podcast with those types of credentials. So welcome, Marcel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So is it is it Penn, right? Or is it University of Pennsylvania? I forget. That's right. The University of Pennsylvania also goes by uh, by Penn. Penn for sure. All right. Well, Marcel, thanks for coming on today. I'm excited to talk to you. You know, one of the things for me, I start I before I understood bonds, um, it, you know, I was attracted to bonds because deal with options and a lot of the math with options about how spreads widen, about how we do volatility and different things like that. It just appealed to me. And but I think bonds sometimes, you know, people go on CNBC and they talk about spreads widening and they talk about high yield or this triple A rated bond or triple C, but nobody really gets into it. And so I was really glad to have you on because I think you'll give some really good points and and input um, and explain some of this stuff. So first of all, I mean, we think about the bond spectrum. Obviously, everybody knows about U.S. treasuries and and how they're rated, but what does it mean to be considered high yield? Yeah, that's a a good question. So, um, you know, I think it's important to understand that um, credit ratings, ratings in general, are determined by the rating agencies. Um, there's a, they have a very nice business going for them. Um, they're nationally accredited, or I guess some government entities have accredited them. them. Um, and uh, you might have heard about some of the some of them. But th- there are quite a few, but there's three that really dominate, and those are Moody's, uh, Moody's Investor Services. S&P, Standard and Poor's, and Fitch Ratings. Um, and, and, and they're very good businesses. In fact, uh, the largest holder or investor in Moody's Corporation is, is, is Warren Buffett in Berkshire Hathaway. Um, he, he really likes that business, I believe, because he views it as a business that has a nice moat around it. Um, so these firms have been doing this for decades, um, and they've come up with these credit ratings. They start at the very top at AAA, then double A, single A, then triple B. And then there's an important line of demarcation because the ones that I've mentioned so far are considered high grade or investment grade. And then anything below that, the letters that I'm going to say now, are considered high yield or speculative grade. So there you begin with double B, single B, then triple C, and then you could keep going, double C, single C, and then D, which sometimes stands for default. Um, and then each of these tends to have a plus or a minus. So you can be rated um, double A minus or single B plus. So, so there are many different levels. Um, but when we talk about high yield, um, we, we, we refer to the ones that are rated below that triple B minus. So starting at the double B plus and down. Um, 
and actually you might hear Moody's actually does it slightly different. They'll, they'll call it BAA3. So it gets a little bit confusing. I'm not going to get too, too much into that. And uh, I'm sure you can find stuff about it if, if you Google it, but um, it's not just corporate bonds and issuers and companies that um, receive ratings. Um, these rating agencies, they, they rate a lot. They'll rate countries. Um, they'll rate um, structured finance bonds like commercial mortgage-backed securities. And, you know, um, they don't just rate um, the, the securities from, from a given issuer. And then they might rate the, the bonds from one issuer differently depending on the risk factors. And, and so um, a lot of this really has to do with uh, the probability of default. Um, so Moody's did a study. Um, looking at the period from 1998 to 2016 and showing that the one-year probability of default um, for, for a given rating, and, and they kind of come up with the numbers, um, but these, these defaults actually, these probabilities of default actually increase not linearly as you go down the, the rating spectrum, but, but exponentially. So the, the one-year probability of default for a double B issuer was 0.33 percent so that's that's about one in 300 if you go all the way down to the triple c issuer it's over 20 percent so these ratings really um match up to an expected sort of probability of default how does does that make sense yeah no absolutely and and i think sometimes we hear about the ratings and i like how you put some numbers behind it i mean triple b less than one percent you would say, well, that's that's pretty, you know, reasonable there. But the triple C uh, at twenty percent, I mean, that's that's a one in five probability versus one in three hundred. I mean, when you think about, um, I know we'll talk a little bit about what it means to default, but maybe what's the difference between you know a company that goes from let's say you know triple B, which that's right, the last grade on uh, investment grade, right, the last rung. To, to maybe junk? I mean, can you just talk generally about what type of companies are they, or, or not specifically, but what, what sort of happens there in the cash flows and the financial situation? What's going on there? So, so there's, there's two things to keep in mind. First of all, there's the rating that the company maintains. Um, it's important to understand some things about the relationship. So first of all, a company pays to, to be rated and to have its bond rated. That's important to know because there have been some articles over time about how, um, you know, that can be a challenging dynamic when you're paying. But, you know, it's no different than other businesses, um, auditing and, and, and so on. So, um, but when you, when you pay to get that rating, you provide the rating agency a, a lot of information about your company. And some of that information that you're providing is actually um, can be material non-public information. So um, disclosures of this type of information by an issuer to a credit rating agency, um, I believe they're exempt under regulation FD, meaning fair disclosure. So um, if a company tells the rating agency something, they don't necessarily need to tell everyone that. If they tell it to a sell-side research analyst, then they do need to, to, to put out a, a filing and, and, and make that information publicly available. So it's a special sort of privileged relationship that they have. Um, but the rating agencies need to maintain their credibility, and they rate these companies and their bonds based on certain financial metrics. They look at leverage ratios, debt to EBITDA, interest coverage ratios, um, and, and, and other information that's more qualitative in, in, in nature, such as you know, their business plans, 
Um, so, you know, when a company is in an investment grade, um, they have they have to think about who the buyers of their debt are. And there are different pools of capital that um, buy investment grade debt versus below investment grade debt. Um, if you think about it, um, most, you know, you think about an index like the, um, the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate index, aggregate bond index used to be called the Lehman aggregate index. Uh, all the securities that are eligible for that index and all the money that is trying to follow that index has a requirement that they buy investment grade rated securities. So if you if your bonds are downgraded um, from investment grade to below investment grade as a company, you are no longer eligible for all those pools of capital that are tracking that index. Now you become eligible for all the high yield mutual funds and other strategies um, there, but it's a different it's a different and smaller pool of capital. So it ex- for a company, the, the cost of borrowing, your cost of debt, is lower the, the higher your uh, ratings are. But as a company, um, when you are thinking about um, your financial ratios and to the extent that you have some control in terms of how you're operating your business um, to, to avoid that uh, downgrade, you may choose to, to, to work hard to avoid it and maintain your relatively um, low uh, cost of capital and, and and the interest that you pay on your debt. That said, you may say, you know what, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with being downgraded. And there was actually an example of that last year because last year was a year when we had many fallen angels, and that's a term that refers to companies being downgraded from investment grade to high yield. We had some companies um, that really couldn't avoid it because their business um, businesses deteriorated pretty rapidly. You might think of Delta Airlines as an example of a company that was, you know, facing significant challenges and and the airlines continue to face challenges um, around the pandemic. But um, we also saw uh, Kraft Heinz, actually, I believe it happened before the the COVID began, um, as a company that was downgraded from investment grade to high yield, from triple B to double B. But the reason for that downgrade is really because um, companies can engage in activities that are more shareholder friendly or more creditor-friendly. And so um, while I wasn't <laughs> by any means privy to the behind-the-scenes conversations that Kraft Heinz management was having with the rating agencies, you know, I, I would imagine that there was something, to some element of it, because some of this was out in kind of the public and in the news, that Kraft could have cut their dividend and chose not to. By paying a nice dividend, a company is, is, is being you know, friendly towards their shareholders, but as a as a creditor, you might say, "Well, I'd, I'd rather the company hang on to that cash and, and reduce or or eliminate their dividend altogether." Uh, on the flip side, there are times when companies take out more debt in order to buy back equity and, and engage in, in in stock repurchase, and that could be considered something that again is an equity friendly friendly to your shareholders, but unfriendly to your creditors. Um, by taking on more leverage to buy back shares. But companies have all these levers at their disposal, right? They make these these decisions. So um, a downgrade from IG, investment grade, to high yield isn't always such a terrible thing. And there are instances where companies have sort of done it um, thoughtfully and and, and mindfully that they've wanted to do it. Um, But for the most part, it tends to be that companies... Um, you know, see deterioration in, in their business um, and 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 in their profitability and their earnings and their ability to cover cover their interest um, payments and, and the things I mentioned before about leverage, and and that um, will typically lead to that. And then when that happens, 
you have all the investment grade bondholders um, thinking about whether they need to sell these bonds because they are no, no they may no longer be eligible for the mandates that they're running. Now, uh, an insurance company may be trying to have an investment grade bond strategy, but may say, you know what, I still think the Kraft Heinz bonds that I own, even though they've been downgraded to below investment grade and technically aren't part of my mandate now, I'm just going to hang on to them. I don't really want to sell them at a loss. I feel comfortable that they will mature at par. But there are other types of mandates that say you can by no means own anything rated below investment grade. And so those investors become forced sellers. And other investors sell in anticipation of the fact that there may be forced sellers. So you definitely see a price dislocation occur as bonds move from the investment grade pool of capital to the high yield pool of capital. That's a great description, Marcel. And, and it reminds me, somebody who maybe the first day of their, their uh, well, maybe not the first day of their MBA program, but you know, they it's like that the weighted average cost of capital, that formula you see in every page of the textbook, it feels like. that. What you just said sort of puts color around that and how companies make those decisions. Um, I, I did have um, you know, a question around before we get to maybe the risk of defaults historically and thinking about 08 versus 20 or you know, 21, what we've seen. You know, a lot of times you mentioned insights into companies and, and their cash flows and their balance sheets and those types of things. You know, short duration, typically, um, you have more visibility. In other words, there's, if you're looking at a company one year out and you're looking at cash flows and you're looking at, you know, you've got a little more certainty. Are they going to be able to make the payments on the debt? Of course, you know, a bond is a, you're borrowing and you've got to make uh, normally semi-annual payments. But the further you go out, uh, if you've got a, a higher duration, there's a little more uncertainty. Is, is that kind of the way you view things uh, or how analysts in general, uh, look at things, you know, more, more risk in, in long duration. And, and maybe last year was the, was sort of the outlier where companies really needed to restructure debt. You know, if you're a cruise line and, and you have debt that's coming due, uh, probably have to pay a little bit more. You just talk briefly about that aspect of it. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, what we tend to see in the high yield market is you don't tend to see issuers able to issue very long-term bonds in the high-yield market. And one reason for that may be that um, lenders, investors, don't necessarily feel comfortable comfortable extending credit um, beyond a certain point. Maybe that's five years, seven years, maybe maybe as far as 10 years. But you don't tend to see um, an issuer that's high-yield rated come out with, say, a 30-year bond. Now, there are some 30-year bonds in the high-yield market, but those tend to be fallen angels, um, companies that formerly were investment-grade rated, and now those bonds have fallen into um, the high-yield universe. So investors tend to feel much more comfortable extending um, credit, buying bonds of companies um, out 30 years, 50 years, even 100 years, even perpetuals, um, when those are, are, are... higher rated and um, are, you know, either companies that they're comfortable with that have been around a long time that they feel have um, very good financials or even even countries. We've seen countries issue very long-term debt. But as a, a speculative um, company, you're not going to be able to, to issue for a long time. And that's really because there's uncertainty about the prospects of that company. Obviously, as an investor, you hope that it's going to improve, that eventually it will become the opposite of a fallen angel, which are called rising stars, that maybe they will graduate into the investment grade uh, universe as either they repair 
their their business to the extent that it's an it's a business that's in trouble, or um, oftentimes it's, it's it's a growth company, um, you know, a company that's in a rapid stage of growth. So Tesla, for example, issued high yield bonds, um, and and you know you're 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 lending to them, but you understand or you feel confident about their their future growth prospects. Um, you could also think about it as as a probability tree, and the and the more time you have on that tree and different kind of steps. Um, you have more potential for um, default, and you know obviously you know that if you think about sort of a random walk, um, you know that that can your, if your starting point is already that the company is um, stressed or you know facing some constraints around their business or certainly not in not investment grade, that it may be more likely you know. To default, so those are some of the considerations, and, and, and certainly time is is a part of that. Uh, we do see some investors um, allocate to high yield strategies that have um, a maturity segment in, in the short end that they may prefer um, to allocate to high yield bonds with maturities no greater than five years, um, and, and and that can be an interesting way to to invest in the high yield market. When we think about defaults historically, um, and obviously, you know, a lot of questions I get is, hey, what were the default rates in 2008, 2008, which I can't believe is 13 years ago now, but that's an aside. And, you know, now we'll have sort of the 2020. Do you have any numbers? And, I, you know, it differs across the spectrum. You mentioned in your opening, the triple Bs was less than, you know, 1%. The triple Cs are 20%. Historically, typically, what do we see in the high yield space and, and any color around maybe 2008 or, or 20? And then we can kind of talk about how spreads widen during that as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and then maybe before I do that, just, just a little bit of description about the high yield market. So um, obviously, the main component of the, the, the main factor of determining what constitutes the high yield corporate bond market is that we're talking about corporate bonds um, and, and that they are below, they are rated double B plus or, or lower um, by those three agencies or, or one or more of them, Moody's, uh, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch. Um, and, and we're thinking about, um, you know, U.S. Or, or developed market countries. And, and so there are many different ways to slice and dice the bond universe. And we work with index providers to help us with that. Um, but I'm going to refer to... Uh, Again, the old Lehman family of indices, now Bloomberg Barclays. Um, and I'm going to refer to the U.S. Corporate High Yield Bond Index. And that's an index of about 2,200 QCIPs, not issuers, QCIPs or, com- or, or individual securities, um, because an issuer can have more than one security outstanding. And that has a market value of about $1.6 trillion. So when somebody says, how big is the high yield m- bond market? You know, about 1.6 trillion. That's that's one way to frame it. And there, there are different index providers who will slice and dice the universe slightly differently. Um, and so, um, when you're thinking about uh, default rates, there are different ways to talk about default rates. You could talk about um, default rates based on number of issuers. Um, so you would, you know, you would take the number of issuers in this index. I said there's 2,200 um, individual securities. Um, I don't know exactly how many issuers there are, several hundred, and you could um, take the number of defaults and divide it by the issuers. But that doesn't actually tell you about how much, what was the quantum of the debt um, that that defaulted. 
And for uh, an investor, they don't care necessarily how many issuers, they just care about the dollar value. So most um, metrics looking at default rates will, will base it on the par amount, the, the, the actual amount of, of debt. Um, and actually, when I was talking about that $1.6 trillion uh, of market value in the high yield um, index, there's only one and a half trillion of, of par or notional outstanding. So if you can kind of do the math back in the envelope, you'll figure out that most of the high yield market is currently trading at a premium to par. And in fact, the index provider provides the weighted average price of this index, and it's um, slightly below uh, a $105 price. Um, so if you think about that as well, even though um, the bonds are trading at a premium, uh, you, you know, you tend to, they tend to mature at par unless they get called out. We'll, 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 get, we'll get to that. But um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're calculating these um, default rates, the numerator is, is the amount that has defaulted, and the denominator is you know, the, the amount of bonds that were outstanding. Um, so it's interesting to think about the volume of defaults as well as um, framing it within the size of the high yield market. And the high yield market has grown pretty dramatically. In fact, just last year, um, between fallen angels and new issuance, the high yield market grew by about 250 billion. So I, I'm saying today it's 1.6. We were having these conversations last year. We, it was, you know, it was about one and a quarter trillion. So, so the high yield market goes through different phases when it kind of grows and, and sometimes shrinks. Um, but if we think about 2009, um, I'm looking at some data here from JP Morgan, and they have some really good uh, research analysts there. And they were saying that the high yield default rate and the way, <clears throat> excuse me, another way that it's calculated is it's, it's a, a last 12 month default rate, default rate. So they look at the default rate over the trailing 12 months. They were saying that it peaked in November of 2009 at about 11%. Um, and in 2009, they're also saying there was about $95 billion of um, volume of defaults around 70 uh, companies. And so that's important to frame because they also have that, you know, I said 11% in 2009. Back in January of 2002 was an also a, a, a big default wave, about 10%. But in 2002, only about $55 billion of volume because the market was smaller there. So I'm, I'm just kind of mentioning all these things because it's important to frame these conversations and understand both an amount of debt and then as a proportion to the broader high yield, high yield market. Um, you know, last year we did see elevated defaults. Um, depending on who you ask, the peak was somewhere around 6% in 2020. Again, a trailing 12 month default. And ever since then, it's been declining. Uh, JP Morgan's forecasting about a 2% default rate for 2021 and, and 2022. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a large amount. Um, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't anything that we hadn't seen before. Um, there are also a couple other things to, that, I, that I would add to that, um, which is that there is something called a distressed exchange. And some folks looked at, look at the distressed exchange as part of those numbers. And so what is a distressed exchange? Well, according to Moody's, it's when a distressed company offers creditors new or restructured debt or, or a package of securities um, in, in order to have a diminished obligation um, relative to the original obligation. So it's kind of like a prepackaged bankruptcy, if you want to think about it that way, 
But without actually filing for bankruptcy, they exchange their bonds, existing bonds for new bonds and other types of securities and, and, and kind of go through that process pretty quickly. And a lot of times those companies um, are owned by private equity sponsors. Um, but, you know, it's important to think about those distressed exchanges as well, because um, technically, you know, they, they, they have a lot of the same characteristics as, as defaults. Um, it's a long answer to your question, Derek. Yeah, no, I think I think that's great, and and uh, you know one of the things that tells that I watch in the market is we look at spreads widening, and of course spreads we think about the high yield spread. Uh, it, in general, it's right. It's high yield is if the average is six percent, and U.S. Treasuries are one percent. That's the quick math says. You know your high yield spread uh, above U.S. Treasuries is five percent. Of course, you know I, I also see people quote. The high yield spread at different tranches, you know, the the triple Bs versus the triple Cs, or the you know, and things like that. But that's one of the the big tells, and it's similar actually to what we see in the options market, how we see premiums rise or spreads widen uh, within you know the bid ask spreads. But you know, we think about the high yield spread. There's different parts of that. Um, I think I remember seeing the triple Cs widen considerably. So maybe just go, it'd be good to go through that, and then there's an implied risk of default, and you know it's it's been some time since I ran any of those calculations, but you know your your spread sort of implies a probability of default, not a certainty. So what's going on there? With uh, you know talk about that that aspect of it. Yeah. So let me let me take that second part first. So if you're investing in uh, security and let's say the example you use, you get 5% or 500 basis points to use um, bond jargon. Um, you have to ask yourself, um, am I being appropriately compensated? What am I being compensated for? In the very um, basic sense of investing in this asset class, you would hope that that incremental spread that you're getting will uh, more than compensate you for any losses given default. So not just defaults, but losses given defaults. Because when a company defaults, um, it's not a, it's typically not a 100% loss on those bonds. Those bonds will go through some sort of bankruptcy process or this you know type of distressed exchange or something like that that I mentioned. Um, and you will have some sort of recovery. And the historical recovery rates, again, some data from Moody's, and uh, an analyst, a, a very uh, incredible analyst from Deutsche Bank named Jim Reed, who does an annual default study, the average uh, recovery rates for um, senior unsecured bonds hovers um, around 40%. It's actually pretty amazing historically. And this is data going back from 1983 to 2019 in, in one of the recent um, reports that I was looking at. So you invest in a bond at par. Now, if you bought it at a premium at 110, that's important to keep in mind as well, because recovery is 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 relative to the face amount. The bonds are issued and and, and are considered in 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 terms of par. So you 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 uh, you bought a bond at 100, uh, your recovery through bankruptcy on average will be 40. So if you, so, your losses given default will be you know typically 40 percent of the of the amount that you. Um, invested in. And then you have to assign a probability to that. And we talked about some of those probabilities. Um, but when you're investing in these securities for that 5%, um, you want to be compensated 
should you um, have this type of default? And of course, investors don't look at this in isolation from one bond. They want to have a diversified portfolio of um, high-yield bonds. And so they're looking at these numbers and, and, and doing this math across um, the portfolio and weighting them by the different position size. I have a 1% allocation to this company. I have a 50 basis point or half of 1% allocation to this issuer. So they're running these diversified portfolios. But you also hope that you're getting some excess spread. And you also want to be compensated for other factors, such as the volatility of the asset class, because high yield can be uh, a fairly volatile asset class, especially as compared to um, the types of things you'll see in your core bond portfolio, like treasuries, you know, agency mortgage-backed securities, or investment-grade corporates. Um, you also want to be compensated for the liquidity, not just the volatility, but the fact that high-yield bonds um, don't trade in as tight uh, bid-ask markets as other types of um, investment-grade securities. And so there are other factors that, that you need to be um, compensated for. Some would argue that you need to be compensated for doing the credit work and underwriting and anal analysis of this, of this company. Um, but you want to get some excess spread there. Now, with respect to that credit spread and, and the different portions of the market, um, I mentioned before the $1.6 trillion in the, in the high-yield in index. And Bloomberg Barclays will also slice and dice this index just based on the, on the ratings. So if you think about the double B portion of the market, that's actually the largest portion of, of high yield. The highest credit quality within high yield is double Bs, and that makes up more than half of the high yield market. And that's increased um, of late as compared to, say, December 2019. I'm looking at a chart from, from Barclays Research where the double B portion was less than half. It was about 48% in December 2019, and today it's around 53%. Um, one reason for that may be the large amount of fallen angels that happened in 2020. And when those companies are downgraded, um, unless something has deteriorated very rapidly, they typically are downgraded you know, one or two or three rungs at a time. And so they were probably triple B rated or triple B minus, and they fell into that double B bucket. And that may be one reason um, why that bucket has grown. So, so today, the, the double B index has about 1,100 members and a market value of about $860 billion. Um, so that's kind of corresponding to that, that, what I said earlier, that it's about half the size. The average coupon is five and a quarter. The average dollar price, dollar price is 106. And the yield on, if you just looked at that index, that sub-index, or if you just wanted to invest in double Bs, is only 3.27%. That's, that's fairly low. We know that um, not too long ago, the all-in yield on the high-yield index fell below 4%. Um, it's definitely climbed back higher now, um, but um, some investors have pointed out that um, you know, high yield is, is becoming a, a bit of a misnomer, and we've actually seen some high-yield issuance, I believe, in Europe, um, where, where some high-yield bonds were trading um, at zero or even negative yields, um, which, is, which is kind of crazy to, to think about. Now, if you go to the worst part of that, if I'm just kind of breaking it out into the three big credit rating stacks, double B, single B, and then triple C or below, if you look at the triple C index, there's only 300 constituents there, um, 200 billion of market value, um, and the average price there is around par. So these are, these are not necessarily trading at a premium, and the average yield there is, is well over 6%. Um, so very different in terms of 
the yield that you're getting, but obviously um, a lot more risk. And then investors tend to look at the spread between those two yields. So I mentioned one was three and change and one was six and change. So today that spread is around 300 basis points between the double Bs and the triple Cs or 3%. Um, in April of 2020, that differential was 11%, 1100 basis points. Um, you know, in, in late March of 2020, double Bs were trading around a nine and a half percent yield and triple Cs were around 19 and a half. Um, so the, the, the 11%, you subtract those, you only get 10%, but, but that was in March. And, and April was actually when the differential uh, peaked at 11% in this recent environment. Um, it's actually interesting that double Bs were trading at 9.5% in March of 2020 during the kind of the, the peak um, fear around COVID, because in, in February of 2016, um, Double Bs only topped out around 7%, but that differential between triple Cs and double Bs was um, even higher. It was 11.5%. Um, and, and one reason for that was if you recall back in late 15, early 16, we were going through a pretty um, difficult time in the energy space uh, with a lot of energy downgrades, credit migration, um, and, and, and defaults. And so that's important because we talk about these sub-slices of the high-yield index, and we're only referring to their ratings. But when you look at the triple C portion of the universe, there is a lot of idiosyncratic risk. You are talking about equity-like risk in some cases, because some of those companies are going to go through a default and a bankruptcy and restructuring. And if you own those bonds through that whole process, you will probably receive post-reorganization equity in the new company. Um, so, so that's when you really need to um, do your credit work in those triple Cs. I mean, you need to do your credit work uh, anytime unless you're buying more of an index strategy. But, um, but that's where those, um, those specific names in the triple C universe can behave very differently. And it's, it's, it's tough to lump them together and just call them all triple Cs because there are a lot of different stories. That was really interesting when you point that out. And in my research before this, I just pulled up the generic, you know, from the St. Louis Fed site. Uh, and the triple C over, I believe it's treasuries. And I, and I said, yeah, that's interesting. You know, we, we think about what we went through last year in 2020, but I did pick that. And of course, you know, 2008, 2009, uh, according to my data, the spread was over, I mean, it topped out close to 37%, meaning, you know, U.S. Treasury is 1%. You're getting 37% yield to maturity, right? Which means those bonds have sold off. But you already told us the triple C's you know, historically have about a 30% default. But but I, I was glad you brought that up because I think that really gets to the heart of it not all the not all these bonds are the same. And you know, you pointed to the energy space. So um, but it what it kind of was surprising to me. I mean, middle of the pandemic we're shut down. And um so yeah, I, I was certainly you know glad you brought that out. And you know, the, those spreads, so the back of the envelope is what do we do there to if we want to take a spread and then impute a, a probability of default, like how does that work? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's different there's different ways to do it. I think um, you know the the simplest way is to divide. Um, you know, so the the implied default rate would be this credit spread divided by uh, one minus the the recovery rate. So basically, the credit spread divided by 0. 0.6. But that's again, that's a simplistic way to look at it. 
and um, are, you know, arguably your credit spread should um, offer you compensation for more than just uh, you know, defaults and losses given uh, default. When we think about the default process, and um, I know I, I want to get to, uh, I want to ask you about some zombie companies. So maybe you can briefly just explain, okay, I own a high yield bond and I own this bond uh, and more likely I own a fund, right? And the fund deals with this. But you know, if I have uh, Jim's bait and tackle shop, and I'm going to assume they sell fishing rods and you know, fishing supplies, right? If if they default, it means they can't make the payments anymore, and so they go into default. What, what does that mean? I, I own a bunch of tackle and bait. Um, you know, can you just kind of give us some color on on what that looks like. Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you know, I'm not an expert in in distressed debt or bankruptcy and restructuring. Uh, I did I did take a class. On bankruptcy once in at the law school when I was when I was getting my doing my graduate studies, but I will tell you that um, those that those items those assets they, they are important because um, collateral is important when you're when you're um, approaching this type of dynamic in the life cycle of a company. So if a company um, is in distress, oftentimes they'll get something called dip financing. That's debtor in possession financing. And that lender becomes the most senior lender. Um, and that lender is, is going to receive a pretty high, um, nice coupon for, for doing that lending. But they're not going to um, engage in that type of business unless there's, there's collateral available. So, um, you know, the, the dip financing is important um, during restructuring, under, under corporate bankruptcy law. And it may be used to keep a business operating until it can be sold as a going concern, um, if that makes the most sense for creditors. Um, so you often see that and you hear about the stalking horse or, you know, another company that's going to come in and buy some um, profitably or, or, or certainly um, reasonably profitable um, segment or business unit or portion of a company. And that can provide um, capital and, and assets to, to other creditors um, when, when, when the company is in kind of this stress mode. But if, but if ultimately um, it's decided that the company must close um, then there's a liquidation of assets, and there's um, you know there's a, there's someone who 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 stewards that whole process. Um, but yes, ultimately um, inventory, what you talked about, the, the bait and fishing rods, what have you, um, you know th- th- that will be part of the liquidation. They'll go through and they'll liquidate all the furniture. Uh, in fact, I remember um, you, you know you there there were auctions around. Um, uh, you know, the swag that Lehman Brothers was giving to their employees, thermoses and, 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 and all this stuff. So, yes, ultimately there may be liquidation or you might have, uh, you know, another company come in and buy the inventory. Let's say you're, you're talking about a retailer selling clothing. They might buy all their clothing. And, you know, I mean, it really depends on the asset. And again, I'm not super familiar with how those those liquidations happen. Um, and, and, and you tend to have a pretty um, severe haircut. Um, but yeah, there are companies that specialize in that. Um, I think all the office chairs that Lehman Brothers were were sold off. Um, so so yeah, ultimately, and and all that um, goes through that bankruptcy process and is used to pay um, creditors. And obviously, the secured creditors already have ring fenced certain collateral, and the unsecured creditors are going to have um, worse recoveries because they're just they just have a general claim on the assets of the firm. No, that's great. And, and, uh, probably this was undergrad finance 101. It's like the first week you, 
it's, it's sort of the order, right, of uh, the capital structure. It's, uh, you know, senior loans. I'm, I'm simplifying this, right, but senior loans, the bondholders, the preferred stockholders and equity and some some derivation of that. We'll, we'll leave that maybe for another discussion. But um, no, that's that's great. And, you know, I, I think that's it's it, as you said, there's a lot into it and it's you don't get nothing right. Um, because there are assets to sell. I didn't know that about the Lehman. So that, you know, the foam drink holders and the, the keychains they're selling that stuff off. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So, um, let's talk a little about in the remaining time we have, you know, the zombie companies. And I, I was watching, uh, I think somebody went on Bloomberg TV and they were, they were talking about how you've got all these unproductive companies that all they do is, you know, they can't grow, but um, there's a little nuance to these and, and maybe you can just, because uh, I, I think it does, you know, this is really a, a, a high yield focused fixed income discussion, but when we think about zombies, this is directly related because it deals with debt. So what are zombies and why do we care about them? And, you know, why are they being talked about? Yeah. So that's interesting. I think it's funny before this call, I mentioned to my wife that I was going to be talking about zombies and she gave me a funny look. And I think, um, <laughs> you know, um, zombie companies are certainly um, getting some press. Um, and I think that's probably because of the name. And, um, you know, whereas uh, I, I, I do read research um, that has really nice charts of, of fallen angels and rising stars and other terms that are more established in, in the vernacular of high yield investors. I think zombie companies, while the term is, is known, um, it's probably lesser known and it's not always um, exactly precise what we're referring to when, we, when we're speaking about zombie companies. I, I'll start um, with a very basic um, definition. Um, and, and there's been, uh, Bloomberg News had an article about this recently, but there's been some um, studies and, and conversations about zombie companies for a long time. So um, you know, at, at, at the very basic level, it's a company that isn't generating enough operating earnings to cover their interest expense. Um, and, and so, you know, Bloomberg News was talking about these zombie companies getting their nickname because they kind of limp along, much like zombies. Um, they're unable to earn enough to dig out from their debt load, um, but they still have access to credit. They're able to roll over their debts um, and they're not necessarily forced in, in, into bankruptcy. Um, but they but they tend to be a drag on the economy um, because they they obviously are still operating. They're, they've got assets tied up and and yet they can't really afford to invest in, in their business or, or really build their business. Now they're not a new phenomenon. Um, I was actually doing a little research and I came upon a report from the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, back in September 2018, talking about zombies in the context of you know the lost decade in Japan in the 90s. Um, and it, they, they also tried to characterize zombies as, um, you know, this broad measure of a firm that um, has an interest coverage ratio of less than one, which is what I said earlier, um, but that that has happened for at least three consecutive years. Um, I think a lot of the press that came out in 2020 was, or, or, or more recently, and you know, early this year was about zombie companies that really only um, began, began being zombies in 2020 because so many businesses um, had their revenues um, challenged in, in very dramatic ways in 2020. Again, you mentioned them, uh, the airliners, the cruise companies. Um, 
But I don't think that all those companies had been in that state for, for prior years. And I'm not sure when we look at some of these numbers, if they really apply to a three-year period. The other thing about the definition was that they say in this study from the Bank of International Settlements that um, the company must be at least 10 years old. So we don't want to call a new company, a startup or a company that's just kind of getting going. Um, we, don't, we wouldn't want to refer to that as a zombie companies. We know that um, companies that are in, in, in growth mode sometimes are actually investing a lot in their business and may not have earnings left to pay interest, but they're really growing. Um, the other thing that the study talked about was that um, in other geographies, not necessarily in the U.S., but in, in some geographies, these are a, a byproduct of weak banks. And, and these occur in, in, in countries where banks are critical, perhaps more critical, or with you know, countries that have less developed capital markets and bond markets, where the companies are really um, exclusively borrowing from the banks. And the banks may not want to write off the debt. And so it's better for the bank to continue to lend to the company um, or to extend, you know, roll over their debt as opposed to um, recognizing that this may be a company that's not in good shape and, and, and writing it off. Marcel, is that kind of the old, uh, I was just going to ask, is, is, you know, the term, what is it? If you owe the bank a million dollars they own you. If you own a billion, you own the bank. I mean, is that kind of what you're talking about here? Well, you know, it, it really, it really depends. But, um, you know, we know we've been through some challenging times, you know, with the European debt crisis, say eight years ago, uh, again, in Japan. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think what you, elements of what you're talking about is, is are actually do ring true. And, and so, um, you know, it's, it's important to recognize the dynamism of the U.S. economy, that we have really good bankruptcy rules here, that they're seen as good practice. They enabled banks um, to quickly clear up their balance sheets and get back to business after the 2008 crisis. Um, now, now maybe the, the, the case that higher risk appetite and lower interest rates also help um, zombie firms. And, you know, one of the things that some say the Fed has done is, is to really um, encourage risk taking. And in 2020, it, it was probably a good thing in the sense that um, instead of just saying, well, all the cruise liners and all the airlines have to fail because of what's going on in the pandemic. And, you know, the fact that people are flying, you know, half, we see half as many people are, are you know, whatever the, the numbers were, they were pretty draconian where airline travel was effectively stopped and uh, cruise travel was, was truly just completely shut down. Um, the, the Fed and the government recognized that this was not a permanent situation, or at least that was the hope. Um, and so they wanted to encourage continued lending to these companies and, and not necessarily having um, you know, a massive wave of defaults um, caused, by, caused by a pandemic, which was really... Um, you know, you want to talk about a black swan event, some call it a, a gray swan because there's been certainly plenty of press anticipating or, 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 or studies anticipating a pandemic, but certainly it was a, it was a terrible event. Um, so, so you could argue that certainly there's been higher risk appetite. And then, of course, we know that we have been in a period of, of lower rates. So there may be more zombie firms. It really depends on how you, you know, how you view it. Um, and then, um, like I said, that th these are much more prevalent in other countries. So I, I was just, uh, you know, reading a little bit about this. There's an, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal in December that talked about Korea 
and uh, data released by the Korea Capital Market Institute that there were 4,000 such firms in Korea um, uh, subject to external audit in 2019. So companies that are actually being audited. So of course, there may be more. And that was more than twice the number a decade earlier in, in, in 2008. Um, so other countries that have different types of capital markets and bank lending systems um, may have more zombie companies. Um, it may be true that we've seen more in the U.S. I'm hopeful that as, um, as operations resume, as more folks are flying or cruising or whatever those businesses that are challenged by the pandemic as, as we start to reopen, that those, um, those revenues and, 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 and earnings and business prospects improve and that some of those fall um, uh, out of the, of the zombie firm bucket. But of course, um, we, you know, we may see some defaults um, you know, and some companies unable to, to recover. I just love the name. I think that's why it gets popular. People talk about zombie companies, right? I mean, and by the way, you know, I, I mean, you're giving an absolute masterclass. This has been tremendous. And, uh, you know, how in-depth you've gotten in, in the high-yield space and, and bonds. Uh, I know when we originally talked, we said, you know, let's, I want to talk about M2 expansion. And, you know, we would never do it justice. We'll have to have you back on that. Uh, I do think, though, there is... There is a relationship, though, and you know you made the the sort of fundamental uh, nuance between a, a growth company like somebody like Netflix uh, for many years had negative free cash flow to uh, to the firm, right, uh, or to equity, but they weren't a zombie company. I mean, they had they were borrowing in debt, um, but that that's a different instance than let's say a company that that literally you know their operating earnings are less than um, then, you know, what, what their, uh, uh, what their interest payments are. But I mean, I, I think too, though, I mean, you mentioned earlier in your, your remarks about how, uh, was it high yield in Europe? You're actually seeing a, a, I don't know if it's gone negative yet, but almost zero interest rate. And so, I mean, that's one of the things people bring up, I guess, with zombies, if rates ever materially rose, uh, they would be more, the more zombies than they already are. And, I mean, I guess that gets into two. It's, I mean, a lot of people look at these and are like, hey, you're unproductive. You can't grow. All you're doing is you're, you know, trying to maintain the business to, to cover the debt, right? So, um, you know, I, I guess that's, that is the risk, right? I mean, if, if rates rose, um, but then also what about the unproductive resources? And, you know, you can briefly touch on that. Yeah, I, um, with respect to the, the negative high yield, um, Actually, uh, yeah, and, and the, the company, the, there were a few companies that were mentioned. So, you know, there's different sort of milestones that the market looks at. First of all, can there be a high-yield company that will see its bonds trading through the zero bound, which in my mind is very artificial. You know, what's the difference between a negative-yielding security that's yielding negative 0.1% and a positive-yielding security that's yielding 0.1%? Well, it becomes sort of a behavioral bias. Uh, investors say, oh my God, it's negative. But the difference is only 20 basis points. And 20 basis points isn't a lot. If I said it went from yielding 1.3 to 1.1%, you'd say, you'd shrug your shoulders and say, you know, what's, well, who cares? But the minute it goes from positive to negative, um, it just hits kind of this wall, a behavioral sort of wall where investors just, you know, they can't, they scratch their heads. They can't believe that it might be negative yielding, but it's really just 20 bips lower yield. So I think that's interesting, but you know the the, the press loves to 
kind of um, seize on this, and and, and they are um, unusual. So it, it is if it if it, if it's called a high yield security, it, 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 having a negative yield is is certainly unusual, and and you know you could call it an oxymoron. Um, there there was uh, the, I think this first happened in 2019. Um, Nokia Nokia bonds. So these are you know high quality, the the highest quality high yield, the double B type securities and relatively short maturity because you know all else equal the lower down in rating and, and the longer in maturity the, the higher the yield um, but you know the the high yield bonds of Nokia some of them were, were trading at a uh, negative um, yield uh, the US packaging company ball Corp had a euro junk bond trading at a yield of minus 0.2 percent um, but that was you know a one-year bond or a two-year bond so relatively short maturity but still important um, in, in you know in terms of that in terms of that context. Um, but um, even just looking at the double B index for uh, euro high yield bonds, you know at at the time and back in 2019 it was it was under two percent when they were first talking about these negative um, yielding securities. So you know every every asset class and in fixed income is considered relative to another. You have the ba- the base rate, sort of the benchmark rate. Your, your sovereign bond yields. And so um, that's important to have that context, to frame it, to think about, well, I am getting a negative yield if I, if I invest in 10-year bunds, the, the German government debt. Um, so, so I may appreciate a security that's offering 2%, even though it may not really uh, square with the moniker uh, high yield. Yeah, and it's uh, definitely want to have you back. We're going to get into negative rates on on sovereigns. Uh, and for anyone who who thinks they have to write a check to a company or government, it doesn't work that way, right? You, you buy it at greater than par and redeems at par, assuming no defaults, and um, it either has zero coupon or there's no mechanism to have every bondholder write a check to the company. The only times I've heard, I mean, because companies pay out their their bonds and they you know they can pass that money through. Um, but there's no mechanism to collect <clears throat> from your bondholders. So you're right. There is no, um, you know, there is a concept of negative yield, but there isn't necessarily such a thing as a negative coupon. Now, the only, the only, um, the only exception to that would be, for example, if you um, had a mortgage with a mortgage loan with a com- with a bank. And I've, I've read in Europe, some banks are crediting their mortgage. Um, you know their borrowers when they, when there are negative mortgage rates and operationally that would be easier to to do because you know that's a relationship between you and the bank um, so I'm not I don't you know I don't know if that'll ever happen here but I could imagine that instead of my automatic payment made on my mortgage to Wells Fargo should that um, should there be such a concept as a negative mortgage should we get into a period of negative rates uh, you know it may be easier. For Wells Fargo to, to to pay me on my mortgage if if we ever got to that dynamic, but it's much harder for Wells Fargo as a borrower, as a company with corporate bonds, corporate debt outstanding, to go and find every last bondholder and 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 um, and collect from them. So so it is an operational um, impediment. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Well, Marcel, this has been tremendous. I mean, like I said, this is kind of an absolute masterclass and. Uh, it's great to have your expertise, and and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I mean we've we've been uh, we've had the privilege of being on multiple calls with you and, and your insights and uh, into the space. Uh, you know, it definitely helps us and what we're doing. So, 
we'll, we'll have you back. And uh, I'm glad we just kept it to this. And uh, uh, this has been great, Marcel. So thanks so much for, uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. All right, folks. We'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.